0: Uh, One day, as Jesus so often would, uh, he was talking to a big crowd of people. And it's really interesting to read through the Gospels and find out, you know, not only did Jesus speak to small groups of people and even at times two or three people, but but many, many times Jesus was speaking to large groups of people. And one day uh, he was speaking to a large group that was so different from one another. It was a very diverse group of people. Uh, Some people in the crowd would have been considered friend and some people in the crowd would have been considered foe. Uh, Some had decided to follow Jesus, and some in the crowd had decided that they would never follow Jesus. Uh, Some in the crowd had made up their mind about who Jesus was. Some of them thought that he was the Messiah. Some of them thought that he was an imposter. But there were still some of them who had not yet made up their mind about who is this Jesus. And so Jesus looked up, and he addressed this large group of diversity in front of him. And he told a story because Jesus loved to tell stories. And he told the story about a shepherd, but just not a shepherd, but a good shepherd because there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds and there's so-so shepherds. And Jesus said, let me tell you about a good shepherd. A good shepherd is a shepherd who protects the life of his sheep. A good shepherd cares very much about things that threaten the life of his sheep. That's a good shepherd. Uh, that should go without saying, but Jesus was speaking to a culture that knew a lot about shepherds and sheep, and he said, a good shepherd cares about the life of his sheep. And because a good shepherd cares about the life of his sheep, he cares about the things that threaten the life of his sheep. He cares about things like wolves and thieves and traitors, anybody or anything that would get close enough to threaten the life of the sheep, a good shepherd cares about those things. And because a good shepherd cares about his sheep, he knows them by name. And he leads them in the direction of safety and life. And because he cares about the things that threaten his sheep, he always moves them away from those things and he stands there as the protector of his sheep against those things. Anyone and anything that would threaten the life of his sheep, that's what a good shepherd would do. He leads them in the direction of safety and life. And as long as his sheep stay in that pasture, they are protected. But the moment that they leave that pasture and they go out there on their own, they make themselves available to danger and to potential death. They put themselves in a situation where a thief or a wolf can move in and rob them of life. And so Jesus told them the story about what a good shepherd is, and then Jesus announced to all of them, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I care about my sheep. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus said, in this story, you are his sheep. And as the good shepherd, Jesus cares about you, one of his sheep. He cares so much about you. He cares about anything that will threaten your life or the quality of your life. He cares very much about any thief or any traitor or any wolf that may get close enough to you to rob you of life. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, looks at you and he looks at me and he says, follow me to a place of safety and life. A place where I will guard you against the wolves and the thieves and the traitors. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And then he spoke some words that they would never forget. And these words have just been stuck on me for months in a good way. I just can't get away from these words. I, I, I use them personally uh, when I'm just reading. I think about them. And, and then just, I've, I've just regurgitated these words over and over to you over the last few months. And I hope that they're beginning to stick to you in a good way. But Jesus, after saying all of that about a good shepherd, he says, the thief, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy And oftentimes, the thief, you don't even recognize him until it's too late. The wolves often are in sheep clothing, and so you get so close to the wolf, you don't even realize that you've gotten so close to the wolf that they're stealing and killing and destroying your life. Jesus said, some of you, you have allowed the wolf in. You have allowed the thief in, and you don't even know it. You're not even aware of it. And without you even being aware of it, it's stealing and it's killing and it's destroying you. It's stealing, it's killing and destroying your marriage, your relationships. It's destroying your finances. It's destroying your faith. The thief, the wolf, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, anytime you read in the Gospels Jesus describing himself, I think you should just pay special attention to that. I think you should just open up your Bible whenever you find Jesus saying something about himself and you should just draw a circle around it. Because I find what Jesus said about himself particularly insightful because no one knew Jesus like Jesus knew Jesus. And in his own words, Jesus said the purpose of his life was to bring you life, was to bring me life, to bring us life. Now, we say it around here all the time like this, that he came to offer eternal life and a better life. He came to offer us life after death. Now, that was the version of Christianity most of us grew up with. That was the one sermon week after week. Accept Jesus so that there's life after death. Get saved so that you have life after death. Whatever you do, don't go to hell. So get your fire insurance and do what you need to do. Get done, take communion, sign the card so that you know when you die you don't have to go to hell and that you can go to heaven when you die. That was kind of the version of Christianity, but Jesus said, well, yes, I came to offer you life after death, but, but equal to that, I've come to offer you life before death. I just don't want you to be fixated with life after death. I want my followers to also think about living while you're alive on this side of death. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, didn't promise an easy life in these verses. He didn't promise a life free from difficulty. He didn't promise a life free from pain or disappointment or difficulty or failure or any of the other inevitable things that life is ultimately gonna throw at you and throw at you and throw at you and throw at at me. Jesus didn't give us an exemption. He didn't give us a pass. He didn't give us a secret safe room to crawl into to escape the pains and the woes of life. But he did say, even in the midst of that, because that's gonna happen, it's gonna happen to you, it's gonna to happen to me, it's gonna to happen to all of us. But he says, even in the midst of all of that, you can have a life full of meaning. Even in the midst of that you can have a life that is seemingly full of significance. Life that's so rich and satisfying it rises up and it spills over into the lives of other people. I think that Jesus was talking about the type of life that changes our mood. You ever met any moody Christians? Can I get a witness? <laughs> You ever met any sour Christians, seemingly just discouraged Christians, just sat on life like they were baptized in pickle juice, like they've got a stone stuck somewhere? I mean, they just look perpetually unhappy and miserable. You ever met a Christian like that? Hopefully not here, but you've probably seen some somewhere. I think that Jesus said, I'm offering you a type of life that is so full that it'll actually change your mood. It'll change your countenance. It may even put a smile on your face. Can you believe that? I mean, if you walk in most churches across America, I'm telling you, you're gonna sit there for 10 minutes and you're gonna start looking down front for the casket. It's like, is this church or a funeral? The the music didn't sound necessarily like a funeral, but i tell you what, the faces sure look like one. What about life so full that you begin to smile? Life's so full that you begin to to laugh. One of the most spiritual things that you may do in 2020 may be to smile more. Here's an exercise. Go out today. Go out to eat after church. And just look at all the Christians in the restaurant. They're easy to spot. You just know them. Not a whole lot of joy for supposed carriers of good news. Not a whole lot of laughter among the beacons of hope. What about life so full that it changes your outlook? It changes your attitude. It changes the way you feel, the way you experience life. That's the type of life Jesus that I've come to offer you. Not just life after death, but, but life right now. Life that he described like this, peace, joy, hope, and love. He said a lot of things about it, but I think you can just drop it into one of those buckets. Jesus said that this type of life on this side of death that I've come to offer you is a life of peace. Jesus, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. How many times do you find Jesus stressed out in the Gospels? How many times do you find Jesus pacing or wringing his hands? How many times do you ever find Jesus just so stressed out that he's barking at people? Write that story where the woman comes up, touches the hem of the garment. What the heck are you doing? No, it's not in there. But if it was a Christian, if it were you, or some other pastor on staff, I would understand it. Of course, if it were any of us. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. I don't want your heart to be troubled. I want you to have calmness of mind, calmness of heart. I I don't want you ruffled by by worry. I, I don't want your mind clouded by sin and guilt and failure. I don't want you to be disturbed by fear. I've come to offer you peace. Well, that's living there. What would you give for some peace? Well, Jesus said, I gave everything so that you can have peace. He said, joy. He said, these things I've taught you so that you may have my joy. You know why I think Jesus was loved by children? Because he was in a good mood and he was a happy guy. Children don't typically like sourpusses. They they just don't. I had somebody tell me once upon a time in my family, I just can't picture Jesus smiling. And I thought to myself, now it makes so much sense. This version of faith, it makes so much sense to me now. We're talking about Jesus who had so much joy that people wanted to be close to him. He says, I want your joy to be full. Joy that you know that God knows your circumstance, God's in control of it. You're grateful that God can take bad and he can work it for good. Joy that comes from that type of gratitude, that you realize how good God's been in your life, how good God's been to your family. How God's grace has sustained you up to this moment. And man, it, it just brings you joy. You're just, you're just happy. It puts a smile on your face. You laugh some. Maybe the most spiritual thing some of you do this year is laugh. Because Jesus said, I come, that you may have joy. You don't have to forfeit fun to follow Jesus. I wish someone would have told me that years ago. I was presented a a version of Jesus that seemed so unfun, so weird. You know, that Pantene hair commercial, Jesus, perfect feathered hair with the very suspicious smile, goofy smile, not a genuine smile. You know what I'm talking about? Just the version of Jesus that really didn't appeal. But you read through the gospels and you find Jesus who really does bring joy and peace. Who brings hope, who says, you know what? There's not all to this life. There's there is life beyond this life. And so don't get hung up on this stuff because it's all gonna be made right one day. And he says, love, this love thing. You know, you love people in such a way you forgive them. They do you wrong. Hey, you don't even need an apology, you just let it go. You don't go through life keeping a score. And you develop an unwritten, unspoken hierarchy of people because, you know, they did this and they didn't do that and they did this and they didn't do that. And you've just got it all figured out, this value system of who is who and where they fit in. You know what life is like when you live life with no score? It's good. It's good. You, you, don't, you don't show up and go through the grocery store and see them on the other end of the aisle and like, oh. You don't have to change service at the church because you looked up at the 1130 and you saw him. Not that that's ever happened here. No, you forgive, you just just don't embrace a life of bitterness. And Jesus said, that's the kind of life I've come to give you. A life of peace and a life of joy and a life of hope and love. And what else is there at the end of the day? You go through life without bitterness, you go through life without holding things against people. What could be better? So here's my question. If Jesus came to give us that type of life, why do so few Christians experience that type of life? Why do so many of us feel an absence of peace, joy, hope, and love? Why are there so many successful Christians in their their business or in their career, but yet they feel empty about it? They don't talk about it, but they feel empty about it. Why is it that so many Christians, they're, they're burning the candle at both ends, they're so busy, they're in motion all the time, but they secretly suspect that they're not really accomplishing much? They're not really accomplishing anything worthwhile. Why is that? I think it's why we've been talking about it's a lack of purpose. Purpose is what brings life to you and to me. Purpose is life-giving. And when you live life with purpose, you realize that everything you are and everything you have is just a means to an end. And when you become a means to an end, every part of your life begins to have meaning. There's nothing that will bring you more life, more joy, more peace, more hope, more love than living your purpose out. I'll never forget. uh, I accidentally got into ministry. Say, pastor, how did you get into the ministry? How did you become a professional pastor? I'm a total accident. And that explains much, I'm sure. But I didn't set out for this career. I, I, I didn't, you know, wake up one day and say, you know what, I just want to be a pastor. That's just what I want to do. No, I, I kind of stumbled into ministry unintentionally. Uh, I can remember, you know, when I said, I'm in, I, I, I put my yes on the table. I believe that I am a part of the local church. I have a part to play. And I believe that the church is at its best when every part plays its part. So I want to play my part. So the local church can be at its very best. I wanna be that person, so I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. My yes is on the table. And I remember when I did that, I remember during the summer, I would go up to the church and I would knock on the church office door and I, I would go in there and I would look at Brother Ed. I really actually think Brother was his first name because that's all they ever called him. I think his last name was Ed, Brother Ed. And and so I, I just knew him as Brother Ed. Mr. Ed, hey, uh, can, can I ask you, what can I do? I, I just, I have some free time. Um, Is there anything I can do here at the church to help? And he said, well, well, lick these envelopes. And I said, well, okay, I'll look them for the glory of God. And and I'd been taught Colossians 3.23 that whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so I'm going to tell you, I licked for the glory of God. I mean, nobody had ever licked an envelope like that before. All of heaven, I'm sure, were cheering. And, And then I stumbled into, you know, they said, would you mind to write a card? Well, who are you going to write a card to? Well, sister so and so, she's a shut-in. She hasn't been able to attend the church in a couple years, and. You know, that was before podcasts and before everything was so readily available out there and it was just hard to get you know, content into people and church into people who just couldn't get out to church. And So I wrote her a card from the church, it's all, you know, I'm just so sorry you've not been able to attend. We love you, we're praying for you. And then I started writing letters to people who had a family member pass away and just say, hey, you know, our church cares and our church loves you and our church has been praying for you and I just want you to know today that someone was thinking about you. And then, you know, they asked me, so you wanna make a hospital visit? Back then I didn't, you know, I wasn't as afraid of hospitals as I am now. There must have been a traumatic event somewhere between then and now because hospitals now freak me out. And so I would wake up at 4 a.m. 4 a.m. Nobody ever trained me for this. There wasn't a class on this. I didn't sign a card for this. I just asked, hey. My yes is on the table. I'm in. I believe this is worthwhile. I want to see the church do what the church can do, and I believe I'm a part, and I have a part to play. And they said, well, so-and-so's having surgery at UT Hospital, so, you know, surgery starts at like 6.30, so, you know, you probably need to get up about four, drive over there. And so that's what I did. Got up at four. I drove over to UT, walked back there, said, I'm from, you know, Mr. So-and-so's church, and I'm here to meet with him before the surgery. I taught me anything. I'm faking it. I mean, I am just bootlegging prayer. That's what I'm doing. I, I, I didn't have a license. I, I, I wasn't trained for this. And so I went back there and I so-and-so, I'm from the church. And I, I just wanted to come and see if I could pray with you before you had surgery. And I grabbed his hand, prayed with him. And I did that. And, you know, I just kept volunteering. And then I volunteered for student ministry. And somebody said, hey, we need somebody to, to drive a van on Wednesday night to, to have a church bus. And I said, Okay, I want to do that. I, I, I believe this is important. So I started going to the local housing projects, and I would pick up a group of middle school students and high school students, and, and I would take them to student meeting. And after student meeting was over, uh, I, I would take them to Dairy Queen and buy them a cheeseburger and buy them a milkshake and just sit there and talk to them. And I'm telling you, you think I'm overblowing it. You think I'm just being overdramatic. I had never felt more alive in my entire life. There was something that was different from licking an envelope to making a visit to serving in a student ministry to go drive a van to bring some kids who couldn't get there otherwise. i would never felt more alive. i had been involved in so many wonderful things. I'd had a great childhood. I'd had lots of great experiences. But I'm telling you, when I got in lockstep with purpose, I came alive and I got addicted to it. Then somebody said, hey, we're going to go knock on doors in the evenings. Would you like to go? Well, sure. And that was before the days when you knock on people's door, they're like, mm. people would actually open the door. So I remember we'd go, to, we'd go to subdivisions and we would go to housing projects. And one day I was at this housing project and I was knocking on doors. And this lady, she was in her seventies. Uh, she opened the door and I said, Hey ma'am, I'm from such and such church. And uh, I just uh, love to invite you sometime. And you know, blah, blah, blah. And, Boy, she was really mad, and she wasn't happy, and, and, but I just kept going back, and finally, one day, she came out and sat with me on her little front porch of her little apartment there at the housing project, and I remember she just told me, she, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian, I don't like Christians, and, and I was thinking to myself, this is like gas on fire, lady, I'm telling you, you're not getting rid of me, I mean, you're just like, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to come back, you better wait, you know, and so we talked, and she reminded me of my grandmother, because she was so feisty, and and I remember I just kept going back and sitting with Miss Ursula. You know, I don't even know how long it went on, but I remember one day we were sitting out there on her porch and we'd had many conversations about faith. And I'm telling you, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about anything. I hadn't lived a life hardly any at all. I didn't know anything, I'd not been trained for this. But one day I had the opportunity to lead her to faith in Jesus. She was the first person I'd ever led to faith in Jesus. And I'm telling you, I'd never felt more alive. <laughs> never felt more alive. And I thought to myself, What is it about this that feels so good? And looking back now, it's getting in lockstep with your purpose because purpose is life-giving. And when you live on purpose, every area of your life is diffused with purpose and meaning. And that's why purpose is such a powerful thing because everything you are and everything you have become a means to an end. And then every part of your life finds brand new meaning. Every single thing, from licking an envelope, to making a visit, to driving a van, to serving in student ministry or children's ministry. This is why Jesus was so clear about purpose. This is why he said, listen, I don't want to, for you to be unclear about this at all. Your purpose as a follower of Jesus is to lead other people to become followers of Jesus. He was clear. He said, I'm going to define purpose for you because you can't define it for yourself. And as Austin reminded us so very well last week. Our purpose is to invite people to follow Jesus. We all have influence to leverage, every single one of us. There's people in your life to various degrees of access and the various degrees of how well you know them, but everybody has influence, everybody has a circle, and we're to leverage it, to lead, inspire, entice, invite people To take a step in the direction of Jesus. And so Austin asked us all this question last week. Are you in? Are you in? And many of you said, yes, I'm in. Many of you had already put your yes on the table a long time ago. Some of you, you just haven't decided yet. But the question's still out there. Are you in? Because it's one thing to say that you're in. It's another thing to get in and then stay in. Because if you're gonna be in, you gotta be involved. If you're gonna say yes to the local church, you gotta be involved in the local church. If you're gonna put your yes on the table, you've gotta be involved. You can't do it from the sidelines. You can't do it from the grandstands. You can't do it by just spectating. You gotta get involved because that's where the action is. We find our purpose in Jesus. We live it out in and through the local church. So are you in? Some would say yes. Yes. Some of you, I don't know. It's kind of dangling on the table. Your yes was in the middle of the table once upon a time, but you've kind of been pulling it back, kind of been pulling it back. You got over in another pasture. And what you thought was a good thing turned out to be a thief and a wolf. And it's been robbing you of the ability and the margin to live out your purpose. So I want to talk to us about what does it take not only to get in, but more importantly, I want to talk to us about what it takes to stay in. Because I don't want to get up here and sell you a false bill of goods and say, I'm telling you, if you'll get involved in the local church, it's going to be the most wonderful thing you've ever been a part of. And I think it will be. But it's also going to be tough. It's also at times going to be frustrating. Sometimes you're going to get chapped. Sometimes it's not going to be comfortable. Sometimes you're going to want to quit. Sometimes you're going to want to walk away. But what does it take to get? It's one thing to get in. Anybody can get in for a while. It's another thing to stay committed and stay in. And so Paul, who I think is the most qualified person to write about this, he, he wrote lots of letters in the New Testament, and, and, and my favorite is Second Timothy. It's, a, it's the letter that he wrote right before he died. He was under the custody of the Roman Empire and Nero and, And he was chained to a Roman guard, and he knew it was only going to be a short time before he was going to be put to death, and so he wrote, you know, a a deathbed letter. And and you know this, you know that if you only had one last message to give someone, you're going to give them what's most important. I did this a while back, I was getting ready to go on a trip, and every time I go on a trip, I think about, well, what if I don't come back from that trip, and I think about what does that mean for the church, I think about what does that mean for my family, what does that mean for my kids, and so... A few months ago, I was getting ready to travel out of the country, and so I I purchased uh, two big poems that were written to sons uh, from a father. And so I I bought two of them, and, and on the back of those canvas poems, I wrote each of my sons a letter. And I sat down, and I just thought through it, and I prayed through it, and I said, this is the last thing that I ever get to say to them. What is it that I want to say to my sons? What do I want to write? What what is it that I want to communicate? What what do I want to say about what's most important? What's what's most hot on my heart and what I'm passionate about for them and for their life? And so I did, I sit down and I wrote this long letter on that big canvas to both of them. And, And I put in there what I thought was most important. That's how I think Paul felt. Paul was writing to a young guy by the name of Timothy who had once upon a time said, I'm in, who said, hey, I'm going to get involved in this local church thing because I believe that the local church is the hope of the world and I believe that what's done for the kingdom of God is the the thing that's most important in this life. So I'm in. And so Paul's going to write him a letter and say, Timothy, I know that you've gotten in and I know that you've put your yes on the table, but I'm going to tell you, as important as it was that you got in, it's equally important that you stay in. And so he writes him a letter and this is how he begins it. He says, Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience. And I love that because Paul wasn't perfect. Neither are neither you, neither, neither am I. He'd fallen down. He'd made mistakes. He'd crossed the line. But just like the scriptures say, a righteous man, a righteous woman can fall down seven times, but the thing is they get back up. So, so don't let the fact that you've fallen down rob you from embracing your purpose. Don't let your past whisper to you and say, hey, you don't have purpose. You have purpose. And you can even serve your purpose with a clear conscience, even though your past is a bit checkered because there's grace for that. And God's grace is greater than anything in your past and anything in my past. And he says, so I'm doing this with a clear conscience because I've never let anything lead me away from the purpose that Jesus has spoken over my life. He says, just as my ancestors did, and I love this, Paul saw himself being involved as a local church as something that was bigger than him, that was bigger than his lifetime. When Paul thought about his involvement in the local church, he said, I see myself as a guardian of a generation of faith. I'm a guardian of a generation of faith. He saw the future of faith as resting in his hands. He took seriously the charge to pass on faith. He looked back and he saw a long line of heroes, men and women of faith that he was standing on their shoulders that once upon a time, because of previous generation, they lived out their purpose. Paul was able to live out his purpose, God's purpose in his generation. He said, I'm a guardian of a generation. I'm standing on the shoulders of great men and women who fulfilled their purpose in their lifetime. And now it's my job to make sure that there's somebody else who's going to carry this long, carry this on after I'm long gone. And so he sought himself as a guardian of a generation of faith. And he says, Timothy, I, I want you to think about it this way as well, because this thing is bigger than you. We're to charge, you know, we have the charge of passing this thing on. As moms and dads and grandparents and men and women and brothers and sisters and parts of the body. We've been commissioned with passing on faith to the next generation. And that's what we should be consumed with. That's what we should be concerned about. You as a part of the body. Whether you're a student, a high school student, a college student, a middle school student, an adult, single or married. You are the guardian of a generation of faith. This thing called the local church, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than the type of music you like or don't like. It's bigger than where you like to sit at in church. It's bigger than your preferences. It's bigger than anything else. We are guardians of a generation of faith. And Paul says, this is the big leagues. This is important. This is a big deal. This is bigger than just taking out a pen and writing down some notes about three ways to have a better life. Bigger than that. Nothing wrong with that, but bigger than that. It's bigger than just coming to a church that you love the music and you love the lights and you love the sound and you love the people. Bigger than that. You're a guardian of a generation of faith. Every single one of you. A guardian of a generation of faith. Around here at the creek, I'm telling you, we've always put great emphasis on the next generation. And when I look to the next generation, I'm telling you, the next generation is bright, There are some incredible children that go to this church. There are some incredible middle school and high school students and college students that go to this church. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I feel like it's just not my job to think about this generation, but it's my job to think about the next generation, and it's my job to think about the generation when I'm not going to be here and when you're not going to be here, but somebody's going to be here if we do our job. Somebody will be standing in our place. Somebody will stand on our shoulders. I was looking at the boys of the day. All four of us were having... Dinner or lunch, and I was just kind of joking around, and I said, "Okay, boys, I just want to know which one of you all are going to take over for Dad, which which one of y'all are going to pastor the creek one day." And they looked at each other, and you never know how they're going to answer that question. I've asked it before, and it wasn't the greatest response. But that time, they looked at each other and they said, "We both are." I was thinking, "Oh, Cain and Abel thing. I don't know." Last week, Grayson got stitches because his brother threw a rock at him. And and, and Shepard said, well, hold on, Dad. Obviously, I'm going to preach. Okay, obviously, sure. And and, and Grayson said, well, I'm going to be like Zach. I'm just going to stand there and sing. Because obviously, that's all Zach does, is just stand there and sing. And so it seems like a pretty good gig to him. And so they said, that's that's what we're going to do. I'm telling you, the next generation the next generation of faith, it rests in our hands. And Paul says, we're all standing on somebody's shoulders, and one day somebody's going to stand on yours if you do your part. Because you're a guardian of a generation. He says, he goes on, he says, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. He says, someone put in your hands the valuable thing of truth and faith and the message of Jesus. You've been entrusted with the message. You've been entrusted with the truth. And it matters what you do with it. It matters what you do with it. Timothy, you've been entrusted with this. It was handed to me. I'm getting ready to die. I'm gonna hand it to you. And then one day, you're gonna hand it on and we're gonna keep on pushing faith. We're gonna keep on expanding the kingdom of God. This is how it works. This is what it means to be involved in the local church. This is what it means to live and walk and breathe and drip, purpose. This is what it looks like. He says, so this is how I need you to think about this, Timothy. Don't take it lightly. It's not a light thing to be part of the local church. It's a big deal. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. We are the gatekeepers of our generation. So he says, Timothy, my dear son, be strong. Everybody say, be strong. Be strong strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. And here's what Paul's saying. To be involved in the local church, to get involved and to stay involved in the local church, it's not for the weak. Keep in mind that Paul's writing from prison. He says, Timothy, you got to be strong to stay involved. If you're, if you're going to live on purpose, if you're going to live for a purpose, if you're going to be part of the church and play your part, you got to be strong. Because if you're weak in your mind, if you're weak in your heart, if you're super sensitive, if you're easy to offend, if you like to quit things halfway through and go home, if you like to pout, if you like to find things and just get upset about it so that you have a reason to quit, Hey, you're going to have to chuck that at the door, sir. You're going to have to leave that outside, ma'am, because you can't stay in if you give in to those things. If that's you, how many Christians do you know that has pointed at somebody, someone, some man, some sir, and said, you know what? That's the reason I don't do it anymore. That's the reason I'm not involved. That's the reason I quit. There's no person you will ever meet. That is more valuable than the purpose that God has spoken over your life. And don't cop out by pointing at somebody and say, I would be involved. I would say yes. I'd put my yes in. I'd be in all in if it wasn't for. He says, no, 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 that won't work. You got to be strong. You, you, can't, you can't just have just a, you know, a, a fluid spine that sometimes you can stand up and then sometimes you just melt. No, he says, you gotta be strong. You gotta be a man. You gotta be a woman. You can't act like a baby. Timothy's reading this, man. Wow. And if anybody could say this, Paul said this. Paul could say it. He'd been stoned multiple times, left for dead, ran out of town, hated by people, misrepresented by people. He said, Timothy, let me tell you, Sometimes this thing's not easy. Now, we're spoiled in 21st century America. We have such freedom by the grace of God to to live out our Christian faith in in most instances that around the world there's a price to pay in many parts of the world to follow Jesus. And that's just not a reality for a lot of us. And it's really just the unexplainable grace of God of why it is the way it is. So, why not use this opportunity? Why not fulfill this responsibility? He says, you gotta be strong. He says, you have heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, Timothy, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Again, you gotta pass this on. Mom, dad, you gotta pass it on. Grandma, grandpa, pass it on. Aunt, uncle, pass it on. And even if you don't have children, if you're a part of a local church, you are a part of helping to pass it on, to help pass on faith to the next generation. So then... Paul, he's going to give us some pictures of what it looks like to stay in or what it's going to require of us to stay in. After we put our yes on the table, he says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says, Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And then he says, And athletes, some of you are athletes, you should, you should get this, cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And then he says, in a hardworking farmer, Hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. It's like, what does he say? Well, then Paul says this: Think. It's a novel concept. Think, think about that. Let it sit there. Let it marinate. Think about what I'm saying. And the Lord will give you understanding to these things. He said, Timothy, if you're gonna stay in, if you're gonna put your ass on the table and say, I'm in, I'm a part of the church. I have a part to play. I'm going to live my purpose out because I want to feel life on this side of death. He said, let me tell you what it's going to require. It's going to require the mentality, the attitude of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Now, it, it's, you, you, could, you could drill down on this, unpack this forever, but I just want to give you some of the highlights. Because he said, if you're going to stay in, you're going to, you're going to have to learn something from each of those. There's something for you to learn. If you're going to say, I'm in. If you're going to say, my yes is on the table, there's something to learn from these three people. To follow Jesus and to live out his purpose requires the commitment, the mentality of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. The first person he talks about is the soldier, right? We all all understand what a soldier is. And so Paul, with with the idea, with the image, with the picture of what a soldier is like and, and all the greatness and all the good that he's lifting out of this analogy. He says, listen again what he says. He says, endure, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Let's all, at all of our churches, let's just read that out loud together. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life. Soldiers go off to war and at the beginning of the war, everybody's thinking about it. It's on the news. But if the war drags on long enough, guess what? People go back to their normal lives. They get caught up in the normal affairs of their life and of this culture. But over across in another land, another territory, soldiers are fighting and defending freedom. They don't have time to get caught up in the things that people back home are caught up in because they're involved in a fight. He says, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Now. I think that Paul's making a lot of points but here's some of the things I think he's saying. You don't decide to be a soldier. You become a soldier. You just can't say one day, you know what? I'm a soldier. No, you become a soldier. Some of you are Marines, some of you know Marines, you've got them in your family, some of you know you have a friend that's a Marine. Marines have a saying. You don't join the Marines. You become a Marine. Marines go through this, you know, just like all of our military personnel, they go through a time of preparation and training and it's hard and it's difficult and it's meant to be that way on purpose. But Marines go through what they call the crucible and it's 54 hours long. It's 48 miles long. They wear 45 pounds of gear. They have 36 problem-solving stations and 29 team-building exercises all along this journey, all on six hours of sleep. And once they finish it, for those who finish the crucible, they are greeted for the first time as Marines. They didn't join the Marines. They became a Marine. And I think Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, you're just not going to decide that you are who you need to be. You're going to become who you need to be. Soldiers prepare. They train. They condition. They do know what's necessary. Why? Because they believe the cause is worth it. Remember when David showed up? And everybody in Israel, and Saul included, they're looking over there at Goliath, and they're all terrified, and they're all shaking, and they're all wringing their hands, wondering what to do, and Goliath steps out, and he's cursing God, and he's cursing Israel, and David shows up and listens and says, why are you people just standing here? Why are you doing nothing? Is there not a cause? What happened after 9-11 in our country? Men and women alike ran to recruiting stations, and so, where do I sign up? Because I feel like there's a cause. There's something I need to give my life to. There's something I'm willing to give my life for. I feel a sense of duty. I feel a sense of responsibility. I love this. This is the soldier's creed. I'm an American soldier. I am a warrior and a member of a team. I serve the people of the United States and I live the Army values. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. I am disciplined, physically, mentally tough, trained and proficient in my warrior tasks and drills. I always maintain my arms, my equipment, and myself. I am an expert, and I am a professional. I stand ready to deploy, engage, and destroy the enemies of the United States in close combat. I am a guardian of freedom and the American way of life. I am an American soldier that didn't fire you up. That doesn't give you chills. Your chillers broke. Imagine believing in something with that much fervency, that much passion, that much commitment to say, the cause is worth my life. If that's the way a soldier feels about his country and God bless the USA, how much more should Jesus' followers feel about the cause that our heavenly Father has spoken over our lives? How much more should we be committed to what we've been called into? How much should we be willing not to play games but to stand our post, wear our responsibility, do what we're called to do, play our part? That's what Paul's talking about. You got a post to stand, you got responsibility to fulfill, you got a part to play. There's a cause. How can some of you just stand around and not do anything? Paul would say. Isn't the cause worth it? And then he talks about the athlete, right? The athlete. How many of y'all played sports at some time in your life? I don't know what's going on. We have most the most inactive sports church I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> what do you people do growing up? The athlete, and listen to what he says. He says, the athlete cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. He's talking about Olympic athletes from his day. They had to train 10 months. There was a specific regiment. They had to basically check every box, say, I'm gonna do exactly this. And once they had done the regiment, they were permitted to play in the games. What, What did great athletes do? Michael Jordan wasn't born Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan. Tom Brady just wasn't born Tom Brady. He became Tom Brady. The greatest athletes of our generation and generations gone past, they just didn't show up and they just weren't who they were at their prime just because they walked in one day or stepped onto the field one day and bam, there it was. No, they paid a price. They worked hard. They prepared. They trained. They said no to some things that everybody else was saying yes to. They said yes to some things that everybody else was saying no to. They went to bed a little earlier. They ate a little better. They lifted a little harder. They ran a little faster. They were willing to do the hard work because it is hard work. And they were willing to do the hard work because the one thing that athletes care most about is what? Winning. Winning. That's what it's about. There's winners and there's losers. Don't believe this crap about everybody's a winner. Everybody gets a trophy out of hell. That came. There's such a thing as winners And losers, and you need to understand that from day one in life, and you're going to have a head start. You lose, you don't get a trophy. Pat on the back, kiss on the cheek, some ice cream, but not a trophy. And second place is no place. Second place is a permanent reminder, you got beat. An athlete cares about winning. Paul says, listen, we're in this thing to win it. It's worth playing hard for. It's worth training hard for. It's worth saying no to some things everybody says yes to. And yes to some things that everybody says no to. It's worth living a little different than our friends. It's worth taking a little bit out of our schedule so that we can be out there on the field. And we just don't have to watch from the stands every third week. No, he says, it's worth it. We're in this thing to win it. We're disciplined, we tame our bodies, Paul would say, in order to be the best version of ourselves. And then he ends with the farmer. Now, I wanna just give a disclaimer. It's gonna be a shock to you. I've never farmed. But I do know that farming is hard work. And that's what Paul says. He says, and the hard working farmer should be the first to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Now. I can say a lot of things, but here's what I'm gonna say. What's the one thing the farmer cares most about? The harvest. The farmer's willing to do whatever hard work is necessary in order to win the harvest. He'll do the hard work of tearing up the soil. He'll do the hard work of sowing the seed. He'll do the hard work of watering and fertilizing. He'll do the hard work of pruning. He'll do the hard work of pulling up weeds so that ultimately he can enjoy the harvest. But The farmer lives by faith because the one thing that the farmer cares most about is the one thing the farmer can't control. A lack of rain, too much rain, a tornado, a hurricane, a natural disaster can wipe out the harvest. But the farmer does what is necessary. Even though he cannot control the harvest, he's willing to throw himself all in there and do what needs to be done. He understands that the more seed he sows, the bigger the chance for the harvest to be when the reaping season becomes reality. Paul says, being involved in the local church, it's like farming, it's hard work. You tear up soil, you sow seed, you water seed, you prune, there's seasons. Farmers always know what season it is. It's hard work. Did you know there was a Christmas tree shortage in America this past year, living like a real Christmas tree shortage in America this past year? You know why? because of something that happened in 2006, 2007, 2008. It was the Great Recession. And during the Great Recession, farmers didn't have the disposable income. They didn't have the disposable time. It had been a rough season, it had been a rough time. And so they didn't plant Christmas trees because farmers also understand that what they do in one season, it may not show up until seasons later. 2019 there was a shortage of trees because of something that happened 10 years ago. And Paul says, "You've been invited into the church, and you're like a farmer, and it's hard work and you get to tear up the soil and you get to sow seed and you get to be part of watering, but in the end, guess what? Only God can give the increase. But we're going to trust God for the harvest, because Jesus said, "Look, the fields are what." Their fields are ready for harvest. We need some workers out there in the field. And so for those of you who put your yes on the table, don't get weary in doing good because you'll reap if you faint not. Moms, dads, you keep on sowing seed and you'll reap if you faint not. Grandmothers, grandfathers, keep on sowing and keep on watering in your family and there'll be a harvest from it. Don't get weary in doing good. You'll reap if you faint not. Children workers, don't get weary and well-doing, keep on sowing, keep on watering. It may not show up for 10 seasons, but it's gonna make a difference. We need some soldiers who believe there's a cause worth fighting for. Are you in? Do you believe there's something worth getting off the sidelines and getting involved? Do you believe there's a cause? worth suiting up for? Do you believe there's a cause worth doing your part for? Standing your post? Fulfilling your responsibility? Fighting the good fight of faith? That's what we need. We need some soldiers who believe there's a cause worth fighting for. We need some athletes who believe there's a victory worth sacrificing for. We need some of you to say yes to some things that you've been saying no to. And we need some of you to say no to some things you've been saying yes to. We need some of you to curtail your schedule just a little bit so you can get in the game. So you can play. So you can shine. So you can run the ball down the field so you can pick up the bat in the bottom of the ninth with a 3-2 count and deliver a win for the team you're willing to do what's necessary to get in there and to play and win because you believe it's worth it and we need some farmers who believe there's a harvest worth laboring for i'll give you this i'm done do you know that 93 94 percent of people who become a christian in america do so before age 13 do you know where the richest soil in our church is We call it kids' creek. We need some farmers to sow some seed and water that seed and work the ground because we believe seasons from now, there'll be a harvest because of it. 97, 98% of people who become a Christian in this country do so before age 18. We call that up front. We need some farmers and some athletes, and we need some soldiers who say, you know what, sign me up for that. Sign me up for kids. Sign me up for the next generation. Sign me up for middle schoolers and high schoolers. Sign me up for that. I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I'll tell you I know about life because I've screwed it up every way a man can. I got something to bring to the table. That's what we need. We need folks to say, yeah, I'll open a door. I'll smile at people. I'll ush people. I don't even know what ushing is, but I'll ush for the glory of God. I'll pour coffee. I'll run a camera. I'll push some buttons. I'll do whatever I can, whatever's necessary, because I believe it's worth it. The greatest thing you can do with your life is serve others. And the greatest place to serve others is in and through the local church. So, are you... Will you put your yes on the table? Will you get involved? Will you find a place to get involved? Will you find a place to play your part? Because there's a part that you can play. Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts. Take that light like you can and shine into the cracks and the crevices. Show us where we need to put our yes on the table at. Show us how that we can move to a place of involvement in the local church. And it may be opening an envelope and it may be licking an envelope or it may be rocking a baby. It may be teaching a small child a story about Jesus. It may be sitting with a group of middle school and high schoolers on Wednesday night, just listening. It may be greeting it may be behind the camera, it may be pushing a button. God, show us where we can get involved. Show us what we can do. May we put our yes on the table. I think we'll never feel more alive than when we get lockstep with purpose. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment, let's just sit and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where maybe you aren't involved and where you could be and maybe perhaps where you should be. God, speak to us in this moment.